words. I want to get into God's word. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want you to open up to the book of Acts. We're looking at chapter 2, and we're, we're going to continue our study on, on Peter's sermon, the first recorded sermon of the church, and it was preached on the day of Pentecost, and it was the day that the church was born. And last week, we talked about how Peter, this simple fisherman, preached a, a, a powerful, anointed sermon. We saw that he started his sermon by explaining what happened. So he was answering the question, what is this? Or what, what, what can we make of this, this experience? And, and we talked last week about how anytime there's this spiritual phenomenon, you need a scriptural support. You need to be able to just explain it from scripture. If you can't explain it from scripture, I'm not interested in it. And Peter stands up and he's able to do that. He takes the people to the word and he says here's what's happening God's word was being fulfilled by the coming of the Holy Spirit so verses 14 through 21 Peter quotes from the book of Joel and out of this first part of the sermon we've got this heavy Old Testament emphasis biblical preaching is important Biblical preaching is important. In the midst of this incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they're experiencing signs and wonders. They're speaking in tongues, and people are hearing them speak in their own dialect. And what does Peter do? He pretty much says, listen, let's have a Bible study. See what the Bible has to say. Let, let me take you to the scriptures and look at what the prophet Joel had to say. Now in verses 22 through 37, he's going to explain how it happened. So he, he already has explained what happened. Now he wants to explain how it happened, how the Holy Spirit came. And the Holy Spirit came because Jesus is alive. News. Now, news always travels fast, especially in today's world. But, but even back then, it traveled fast, especially in the East. And so at this point... Uh, most of the adults in Jerusalem, either the ones that were living there or traveling there, they knew about the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion of Jesus. They'd also probably, at this point, already heard rumors uh, of an unofficial announcement that his followers had stolen the body of Jesus just to make people think that he, he had kept his word, make people think he didn't, or had kept his word and been raised from the dead. They did not want that to be spread. And and here's Peter preaching in the midst of this, that Jesus had indeed been raised from the dead. And, and we're, today we get a look at the meat, the meat of Peter's sermon. He gave them the biblical basis for what they were experiencing and witnessing. And he, he's now going to preach Jesus Christ. Peter's fulfilling Acts 1-8 right here. The witness in Jerusalem had begun. This is the first sermon anointed by the Holy Spirit, and it's centered on the person of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you why it's centered on Jesus Christ, because the entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, points to Jesus Christ. You want to know Genesis, uh, the entire Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. And then all throughout the New Testament, it's about Jesus Christ. This is about Jesus. And Peter's focus is on God's word. And I want you to understand something. It didn't quench the moving of the Holy Spirit. It actually fulfilled what the Holy Spirit wanted to do. All the signs and wonders and speaking in tongues. Listen, they were preparing for this work of God's word. Now, unfortunately, today, some people set the Bible against the Spirit. They almost think it's more spiritual if there's no Bible study. 
And unfortunately, usually, typically, this is because of weak and unspiritual teaching from the very ones who are charged to teach and preach God's word. So what I want you to understand, what I want you to see from our text today is this. The spirit of God and the word of God, the Bible, were never meant to be separated or pitted against one another. Okay? Sometimes you might have some churches that emphasize the spirit, but then they neglect God's word. And the result is you get all kinds of strange practices that don't have solid scriptural support. But then on the other end, you might have some very intellectual churches who are really good at emphasizing the word, but maybe lacking in spiritual enthusiasm. Churches that don't understand that the Holy Spirit and the word, they're married, they go together. They might say things like this. I don't need more Bible. I need more of the Holy Spirit. Or our church doesn't need more Bible teaching, we just need more of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> now, if we, if we know our Bible, it's very clear from beginning to end that the Holy Spirit had a major role in, in the authorship, the transmission, and even the reception of the Bible and its message. In fact, the Bible is very clear about the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the Bible in three ways. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. Number one, the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. I want to read from Zechariah 7.12, and I'll, I'll read uh, from, the, from the screen. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. It was the Holy Spirit. The law, which is usually what the Jews called the first five books of the Bible, was sent by the Lord through the Holy Spirit. Zechariah also says that the Spirit brought the word through the prophets that, that came before him. So we see a good portion of the Old Testament ascribed to the Holy Spirit in this very particular passage. So don't separate the Holy Spirit from the book he wrote. Don't do that. The Bible and the Holy Spirit should not be put at odds with one another. We shouldn't look at the Bible as a, merely a source of academic knowledge that is somehow separate from God's Spirit. It's a spiritual book that speaks to all aspects of our being, from our minds to our hearts to our actions. God wants all of what we are to conform to Jesus, and he uses the Holy Spirit and his word to do that. Amen? So, because the Bible is the Holy Spirit's book, I don't ever want to hear that we need more Holy Spirit and less Bible. They're married. They go together. Okay? What New Heights Church needs, and the church in general, is to pray that the Holy Spirit would use his book in and through us for his purpose. Now, number two, the Holy Spirit helps us understand the Bible. And I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 6. It says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit, of who, spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we might impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but it is himself to be judged by no one. For who has 
under, uh, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit helps us understand the Bible. A few thoughts here. Um, only the Spirit knows God's thoughts. So Paul argues that only the Spirit knows God's thoughts. All the world's religious gurus and their philosophers and their worldly wisdom, all those who think they know and understand God are wrong because they do not have access to the mind of God. Only the Spirit knows the depths of God. He knows the secrets of the Father and the Son. And all that the Father and Son know, the Spirit also knows. Also, the Spirit declares God's thoughts to man. Guess what? Unless God makes his thoughts known to us, there is no way that we have access to those thoughts. For us, humanity, to have God's wisdom, the Holy Spirit has to declare the thoughts of God to us. And guess what? You know how that happens? The Holy Spirit does it through the Bible, the Word of God. Spirit helps us to understand the thoughts of God. The Holy Spirit helps us understand the thoughts of God and interpret them because we, some, we, some, we are someone who has not been born again, or someone, excuse me, someone who has not been born again cannot, cannot understand the things of God. So the natural, unregenerate man thinks the thoughts of God and his wisdom thinks they're foolishness. Look around the world today and how people treat believers in the Bible. It's a joke to them. We, without God's Spirit, we don't have the, the faculties to understand the thoughts of God. But those of us who have been made alive spiritually by, and this is done by the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, those who have new life have been given a new heart and a new mind. So because of the Holy Spirit, His work in them, they, they can now begin to understand the thoughts of God. And the thoughts of God are revealed in the Bible. Okay? Number three, the Holy Spirit helps us speak and teach the Bible. Man, the Spirit wrote the Bible. So, so the Holy Spirit helps us to understand it, not just understand it, but he helps us communicate it to people, to lost people. We need to understand that the Bible wasn't just written for us. Okay, it was written for others too. We need to have a desire to share God's truth with people, whether they're Christians, unbelievers, and the, the cool thing is that the Holy Spirit can help with that, okay? So I hope you're seeing this connection. You remember in Luke chapter 4, 17 through 21, it says this there's this phrase in here, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. The spirit, the Holy Spirit anointed Jesus to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These were all statements regarding Jesus speaking God's word to the people. The spirit empowered Jesus to speak the message that he was sent to speak. So, of course, in our text today, we see that the Holy Spirit empowered Peter to recall the Bible and to, and to boldly speak the word of God. So, in Peter's sermon, he's answering the question that are in the minds of the people, and we absolutely need to understand that the word of God is not irrelevant for today. Can I say it one more time? The word of God is not irrelevant for today. And Jeremiah 23, 29 says this, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? <laughs> Listen to what Dr. Bill Oakley says about this. He says, We are not commissioned to spend our time putting crutches under the word, for it is not crippled. 
We do not need to spend our time doctoring the word for it is not sick. We do not need to expend our energies investigating alleged errors in the word for it is not guilty of the crime. We do not need to busy ourselves x-raying the word for it has no broken bones. We do not need to involve ourselves defending the word for there are no valid charges against it. We do not need to be occupied with apologizing for the word for it has not made any errors. We cannot spend time adding to the word for it is already complete and we certainly cannot take away from the word for it is permanently sealed by the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say this, and this will go up for you. Our call and commission is to preach the word in power. We must preach the word in power because it is heaven's bread for earth's hunger. It's heaven's water for earth's thirst. It's heaven's light for earth's darkness. It's heaven's answer to earth's questions. It's heaven's diagnosis for earth's illness. It is heaven's medicine for earth's diseases. It is heaven's direction for earth's adventure. And it is heaven's victory for earth's defeat. It's powerful. Preaching today needs to be the preaching of God's word. Not philosophy, not my philosophy, not my thoughts, not what I think it needs to be God's word. Peter was addressing a question with an answer from God's word. He's quoting out of Joel chapter two, and you remember what he quotes. He quotes the promise of God to send the Holy Spirit upon the world. And the context is so important because this promise that Peter refers to was for the last days. And Joel made it clear that it would continue all the way till Jesus returns. That's important because Jesus hasn't come back yet. That's important because we need the Holy Spirit if we're gonna fulfill the mission that God has called us to fulfill. Some things in the Bible are hard to explain. We've been on a hard topic. We're talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I get it, the baptism of the Holy Spirit can be a difficult concept to grasp, but it's in the Bible. It's something that you need to understand. It's a gift for you. Trinity is also hard to understand, but it's in the Bible too, right? Just because I don't understand completely how the Trinity works doesn't mean that I shouldn't believe it. Be careful how to approach today's text with that same attitude. Uh, Just because we may not fully grasp it doesn't mean we should try to put limitations on the experience of being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, when it comes to relating to the Trinity, uh, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, in many ways much easier experience than explained, right? Because a child can believe in it. He can interact with the, the Trinity. But man, combined power of the greatest theological minds of the past two millennia have not been able to explain uh, the mechanics of the Trinity. We know it works, but we don't know how. Some things in the Bible are beyond me, and I, I, some things in the Bible are going to be beyond you. You know, there I I shared this story with my class when we teach on the Holy Spirit Wednesdays. There was a man once in solitary confinement. His cell was pitch black, but he had a single marble. And so in that solitary confinement, he couldn't see anything. He could only hear. He could hear the marble drop and bounce, and he'd go and he'd find it. So what he would do to pass time, not to go crazy, is he would throw the marble up, have it bounce on the walls of the cell, hit the floor, and then he'd go find it. He'd do it again and again, and again, and again. Here where it lands, finds it, and he kept doing it over and over. One day he threw up the marble in the air and it didn't come down. He sat up in his cell and he thought, huh, I didn't hear it drop. He searched the bottom of his cell, couldn't find the marble. He tried to think about how that's possible and he went crazy, he went nuts. 
and it eventually killed him. He died in his cell. The guards came into the cell to remove his body, uh, brought some lights in, and when the guard was taking out his body, there was a little twinkle up toward the ceiling that grabbed his attention. He looked up, he noticed a marble caught in a spider's web. And he said, isn't that amazing? How was that spider able to get that marble and bring it all the way up to the top of that cell? All of us, listen, all of us, doesn't matter who you are, all of us have some theological marbles that just haven't come down yet. Am I right? (laughs) I think today maybe some of your biggest theological marbles, you know, talking about the Trinity, talking about baptism of the Holy Spirit. Here's what your pastor would say. You need to believe it wholeheartedly because the Bible teaches it. I know some might have had a hard time getting over the question, why? I mean, why couldn't have Jesus just sent out his disciples when he breathed the Holy Spirit on them? Wouldn't that have been less confusing? Maybe, but I'm okay with not completely understanding everything in my human capability, all that my human mind can grasp and understand. I'm okay with it. I'm okay serving a God that I don't fully understand and grasp. I think that's what makes him God, right? Now, the Bible gives us what we do need to know, and I think that's good enough. So read with me real quick, and I'm going to read Acts chapter 22 again, or Acts chapter 2, verse 22, and we're going to go down to 24 right now. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He's pretty much saying, look, you saw this. Uh, you remember Lazarus uh, and G- what Jesus did. If, if they lived during the time that we live, he probably would have taken a selfie with his phone and put hashtag, I just saw this guy come back to life, Jesus rocks. I mean, that, right? I mean, they saw it, and he's, he's calling them out. He, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And it says, God, verse 24, God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So now Peter's quoting from Psalms, to be exact, Psalms chapter 16, verse 8 through 11. And so we've had Joel, and now he's quoting from Psalms. It's a powerful passage. And what it, what it shows us is, is that the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit enlightens us. Peter, he's really smart here. I don't know if you're catching on to this. And you have to know he doesn't possess this kind of knowledge without the Holy Spirit. Not sure if you caught what Peter's just done here, but he has, he's done something pretty incredible. In just one sentence, he joins the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. People get all worked up about the sovereignty of God and free will, but Peter was able to see both of them working in harmony together. God is sovereign at the same time man is responsible. Okay? So... A murder definitely happened, and yet there was redemption because Jesus said, nobody takes, from, takes my life from me, I give it. I, I love how Peter is able to make sense. Now, just a few weeks ago, Peter couldn't make any sense of what some of the things that Jesus was telling him. Jesus is saying, I have to die, and Peter's saying, no, man, you can never die. He doesn't quite get it. Now he's able to take some of the things he doesn't fully understand and grasp, and he's able to tie it together with God's sovereignty and see that God has a plan. He always has a plan. That's wisdom that he didn't have uh, a few weeks later. I love it. But both things happen. Now Peter's showing us both sides of this. One is from the divine perspective, and the other is from the human perspective. 
What Peter does is he puts them together and he delivers one package. He says that Jesus was delivered according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. But then he goes on to say God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Losing. Got to talk today. Man. Peter boldly confronted his hearers with their sin. Peter didn't flinch at telling them, you crucified this man who was sent by God. And you know why Peter could do this? Because Peter's not interested in entertaining his audience. He's not interested in pleasing his audience. He's interested, he's not interested in whether he's going to be liked or, or not liked. And we talked about this last week. He cares about telling them the truth. And what was it? That the power of God and the greatness of Jesus are both demonstrated in Jesus defeating death. It wasn't possible for Jesus to remain bound by the power of death. This was Peter's, Peter quoting Psalm 16. It, wasn't, it was not possible for Jesus to remain a victim. He's a winner. Jesus is victorious. He always wins. Nobody can defeat Jesus. He's the king of kings. He's God. Nobody can defeat him. Here the world had this plan and they, they thought they defeated him. Peter's saying it didn't happen. Jesus is always victorious. Jesus won. He always wins. Put a whooping on death. And to hammer this home, Peter uses an interesting phrase, pangs of death. The word pangs is actually the word for birth pains. The idea is that the tomb was like a womb for Jesus. And as one commentator said, it's not possible that the chosen one of God should remain in the grip of death. The abyss can no more hold the redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. Death could not keep Jesus down. Just like a baby has to come out of the womb, they can't stay in the womb forever. The resurrection of Jesus, it had to happen. There was no way that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, King of Kings, could be defeated by death. Nope. The truth is that we don't see many things in life that have to happen, you know. Um, but I hate to do this, especially with Pastor Enos here, but there are some times in life where you need, you need to do things. And I remember a Super Bowl few years back where the Seattle Seahawks were playing the New England Patriots and the Seahawks had made an incredible comeback and they were on the one yard line with a guy by the name of Marshawn Lynch, one of the best running backs or fullbacks, whatever he was, in the history of the NFL and they're on the one yard line, give the ball to Marshawn Lynch and let him run it in the end zone. There are some times where you just need to do things, right? And yet Pete Carroll and Russ Wilson had something else in mind. They try to throw it, and history tells us they lost the Super Bowl because they didn't do what just needed to happen. It needed to happen. Give the ball to Marshawn Lynch. Sorry, Enos. <laughs> Jesus needed to be resurrected. It was going to happen. It couldn't be stopped. Man, had to happen. It wasn't possible for it to be any other way, and it proves that God's love and his power are greater than the worst of man's sin and man's rebellion. I want you to read with me 25 through 28. It says, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, that's referring to the grave there, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make full 
of gladness with your presence. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Again, Peter's quoting scripture. Notice how he just has the, uh, the capacity of just quoting God's word. It was something that, that was really there in his heart. The people that God uses are people who have hidden God's word in their heart. They know it so well that at any moment, in any circumstance, they're able to quote from God's word. And then in verse 29, Peter's gonna expound on this text. He says this in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter recognized that though this psalm spoke of David, it spoke of somebody greater than David and it was referring to the Messiah. It was referring to Jesus. In fact, this may have even been something that Jesus was teaching them when you read Luke 24. When he comes back, he's teaching the disciples. This could have been something that Jesus was teaching Peter. Now, some of us are gonna, we're gonna go to Israel this summer and it's gonna be fun. And, and we're gonna actually be able to see the tomb of David. That's something that we're gonna be able to see. And here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, David, he's in the tomb, but Jesus was not. Peter could have even said, look, I'll come show you the empty tomb. If we go to the tomb of David, David's in there. I take you to the tomb of Jesus. It's empty, okay? And then read with me real quick, verse 30 through 32. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses. David knew that God promised that the Messiah would come through him. In fact, you remember when David in the Psalm says, Lord, what can I say? That was nothing. You took me from the sheep coat, from, the, from following after sheep. You made me king over your people. You have done so much for me, and now you speak of the days to come. Man, God, I'm, I, what can I say? I'm overwhelmed with your goodness. Is that something that you've experienced? Have you ever experienced this overwhelming gratefulness for what God has done in your life? Can you relate to David? The next time we worship God, think about where you'd be without him. If you realize what he's done for you, it's gonna leave you overwhelmed by his goodness. But in our passage here, Peter's saying David was a prophet. He knew that God had promised that the Messiah would come through him. He was the prototype. And then look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter doesn't just tell them, or, or, or Peter doesn't just tell him Jesus is not dead, but he also tells him Jesus went back to heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He's exalted. And Jesus promised the gift of the Holy Spirit when he told his disciples, and I'm gonna pray to the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth who the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. They had just witnessed the coming of the Holy Spirit. They had just witnessed God giving the Holy Spirit as a gift to the church. Look at verse 34 with me. 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The Lord said to my Lord. This begins the third Old Testament passage that Peter used in his sermon. Again, quoting scripture. He's preaching Bible. The verse of the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament more than any other single verse. It's either quoted or referred to at least 25 times. In the Psalms, David understood and he proclaimed the deity of the Messiah. Make no mistake, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ was God. You can't get away from it. Jesus Christ was God. He's deity. In this Psalm, King David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he recorded that Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, the Lord, spoke to David's Lord, my Lord, as God. Peter used this to show that the Messiah, who is the focus of all of Psalms 110, is in fact divine. He is God. Let all of the house of Israel know. Here's how the sermon concludes with a summary. And simply all Israel should know that even though they crucified Jesus, God has declared him both Lord and Christ. It's it's as if Peter said, you're all wrong about Jesus. You crucified him as if Jesus was a criminal, but, but by the resurrection, God proved that he's Lord and Messiah. And then when Peter preached, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, in Acts 2, 21, there's little doubt who the Lord is that he spoke of, Jesus. A theologian said that the early Christians meant to give Jesus the title Lord in, in this highest sense of all is indicated by they're not hesitating on occasion to apply to him passages of the Old Testament scripture referring to Yahweh. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as God. Jesus is God. Peter's first sermon was centered on Jesus Christ. He gave him the gospel. He gave him the good news. But before it could ever be, ever be received as good news, it had to first produce conviction. It had to first produce conviction. And that's exactly what it did. In fact, read verse 37. It says, Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? cut to the heart. It felt like a knife had entered their chest. Jesus had promised in John 16, 8, that when the Spirit came, he would convict the world of sin. Convict. In fact, the Greek word means cross-examine. To press you with evidence until your inconsistencies are exposed and you consent to the truth. Think about a lawyer. That's what the Spirit does. Jesus claimed to be God. He, he demanded absolute lordship over his followers. He said he could forgive people's sins, something the Jews thought was absolutely crazy. And Peter, Peter never tries to domesticate Jesus in his sermon. He didn't soft pedal the gospel. He says, Jesus is king, and so you need to submit to him. Psalms 2.12 says, pay homage to the son or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. All those who take refuge in him are happy. You know what? We need to recover the awe of the ascended Jesus Christ as Revelation 6 verse 15 through 17 describes him. Listen to this. Then the king of the earth 
and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide from us the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? You know what? His love has been spurned. His purity has been trampled. His truth has been buried. But one day this merciful Jesus will rule with a rod of iron and the most powerful of men will hide in fear of him. I don't think anyone has illustrated the meekness and the majesty of Jesus better than C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Lucy asked a question to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan, a character representative of Jesus Christ. Is, Is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is, I can't say his name, so just forgive me all you fans of this movie. Aslan is a a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Let me, let me tell you something today, church. Christ is good, but he isn't safe. Jesus really is the true king, so stand in awe of him. Don't be silly. Confess him as Lord. That's Peter's message. Know with certainty. Be assured of this. Jesus Christ is God, and Jesus Christ is king. That was Peter's sermon. It was scripture, and it was truth, and it cut to the heart. You are cut to the heart when you realize it was your sin that did this. Your sin that put Jesus on the cross. You see Jesus looking at you. You did this against God. It was your rebellion, your cheating, your refusal to do things God's way, your selfishness, your pride, your hatred, your bigotry. And before you are cut, you think of sin as breaking God's rules. But after you've been cut through this realization, you think of them as breaking God's heart. See that he came in love as a father coming to gather his rebellious children at home. But you said, no, I don't trust you. I'd rather be in charge of my own life and and we resist him and he wouldn't be resisted and we killed him. So my question, has this realization happened to you? Have you been cut? You see, I think what the church needs to do again is get back to God's word. Get back to the truth of God's word. And that's what I experienced at Asbury. If you really want to know, that's what I experienced. It wasn't hype. It wasn't, it wasn't a bunch of people wanting to tickle their ears and hear the teaching that they wanted. They were getting back to God's word. In fact, student after student after student got up and didn't share their philosophy, didn't share anything like that, got up and literally read from the word of God and the Holy Spirit moved. That's what the church needs. We need to get back to God's word, his truth. Because when we neglect the preaching of God's word, we rob ourselves of the truth that's necessary for realizing God's purpose in our lives. And not just that, but we rob God of the glory that's due his name. I don't want New Heights Church to be robbed of the truth 
or for our God to be robbed of the glory that he's due. The Bible says that the truth will set you free. We better be preaching God's truth. Can you, like John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, can you, can you agree with, can you say this about yourselves? He said, my conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilled and helped to nail him there. Are you cut? Has this happened to you? Have you, have you ever had a, a first-hand personal experience with God? You can't come, listen to me, you cannot come to God on the faith of your friends or your parents or your family. Have you ever been cut to the heart realizing it was your sin that put Jesus on the cross and you need to be forgiven? If you've been cut, then the character of Jesus Christ should be developing in you right now. And I want us today to bring our attention to Jesus in a time of prayer. I want to end in a time of prayer. I want to invite you to join in God's agenda. I know that there are people here and online probably joining us today who have never experienced the reality of Jesus living in you. Maybe you've even been in church all your life, but you've never actually experienced that reality of Jesus Christ living inside of you. You've never begun the process of glorifying Jesus with your life. He died on the cross to save you from your sins. He rose from the grave. And I want to invite you today to respond to God's word. If you have not ever embraced Jesus as your king. Maybe if you said a prayer back in Bible camp when you were 13. I'm talking about have you made Jesus Christ the king of your life? And is your life looking more and more like the sun every day? Because the truth of God's word has cut you. And you realize that it was your sin that put him up on that cross. It was my sin that put Jesus up on that cross. And that's why I follow him and I love him wholeheartedly. That's why I want everyone in this world to know about his goodness and his grace. Because without the grace of Jesus, I don't deserve heaven. I deserve hell. It was my sin who put him up on that cross. It was your sin who put him up on that cross. And when we preach God's word, which is what the, the world needs today, they just need truth. Let's not love people all the way to hell. Let's love them enough to tell them there's a God who loves them. He sent his son to die on the cross because they've got sin in their life and they can't take care of it on their own. It's why we do what we do. You've never experienced it. All you have to do is submit and surrender your life to him. If you're watching online, if you never surrendered, last week somebody watching online surrendered to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. All you gotta do is make that decision. We're gonna close out our service. Our worship team's gonna come back. Everyone keeps asking, Pastor Justin, do you think revival can come? I do think revival can come, but sometimes I think we just need to wait on the Lord and put away distractions. And so we are going to be very intentional about ending our service with time to prayer. You are officially dismissed if you've got to go. If you need to go, you can go. And if you want to stay in worship, you are more than welcome to. We're going to open up our altars and we're just going to seek God. I want to invite you to respond to God's word and what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. Father, we love you and worship you and praise you. Thank you for what's going on all across our country in these different universities and schools and in the classrooms. The Holy Spirit is moving and convicting the hearts of your people. We're seeing true and genuine repentance. This, God, I am sorry we have tried to generate a move of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry we've tried to do church our way. We are surrendering to you. 
We are asking for forgiveness for placing our agenda above yours. We want the Holy Spirit to move in New Heights Church and to move in all the churches across Cincinnati and Ohio and the rest of America and the rest of the world. We want revival. We want another great awakening. God, we want your grace and your mercy and your power and your presence in our life. So God, we're gonna commit this, these next min, these next few minutes to you and we're just gonna pray that the Holy Spirit would do a work inside of our hearts as we respond to your word. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen.